Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the way, the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Today, if you hear his voice, if you hear his voice today, um, Psalm 95 in this set of kingship psalms teaches us that we draw comfort not only from a Lord who will judge our enemies, but from a Lord who will also judge his people. But he will judge us on this basis alone, on the basis of faith in his promises, the basis today of our faith in Christ. I want to follow a four-point outline. It's it's in our bulletin. Um, Two reasons are given initially to worship the Lord. And this whole section, I think, this whole section of, of book four is drawing Israel to worship as really the place where their life will be centered on the Lord. We saw that in Psalm 92. Then we see this uh, sort of difficult and, and severe area of covenant warnings, old covenant warnings in verses 8 to 11. And we see these old covenant warnings in my third point taken up in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, new covenant warnings. And finally... Um, There is a promise we're going to end, as Hebrews does, on a positive note. Positive note on the promise of rest. Uh, Psalm 94 talked about rest from our troubles. And that's what we receive. So first, two reasons to worship the Lord. The first seven verses of our psalm start on a high note of praise. Indeed, they serve as a call to worship the Lord, who is the rock of our salvation. This is a call to God's people. Some Psalms call the whole earth, the whole creation to worship. But this is a call to those who have been saved. Because it's a call to those who have a rock of salvation in Yahweh. Now perhaps in the light of the closing reference in this episode to Meribah and Massah. Where the Lord is present in the rock. right? Maybe there's a little bit of irony here. The rock of our salvation. We sang in Psalm 81. God will give us honey from the rock. If we but trust in him and open our mouths. This also picks up uh, Psalm 94, the last psalm, which closed with the idea of a rock of refuge. So this idea of the Lord is our rock, our salvation is is sort of elemental founding point, starting point here. And these seven verses can be broken down into two stanzas. Uh, There is a pattern here, a call to worship, 
Come, let us sing to the Lord. Verse 1, verse 2, let us come into his presence. And then there's this, this conditional for, gives us a reason in verse 3. And then this is repeated in verse 6 and 7. Oh, come, let us worship. And then verse 7, for. So there is, is a pattern of, of calling uh, to worship and explaining, explaining why. Giving us a justification, a motivation to come into God's presence. And because this call is repeated twice, we have three uses, three verbs here. And they're all translated come in English, but they're actually three different Hebrew terms. In verse 1, we find a very common Hebrew word for go, come, or walk. It's, it's everywhere in the Hebrew Old Testament. In other words, this is the most generic sense of get off your rear and move. <laughs> you hear the call, get out of bed, get to church. Come. In verse 2, this call is a different word, and it's a word that means meet, encounter. Meet his presence. Meet with the Lord. Bring to him, into his presence, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. This is describing more that personal encounter. Verse 20, or rather Psalm 21, uses this verb to say, The Lord meets his king with rich blessings. It's the idea of an interpersonal conversation, as it were. Psalm 59 says, God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will be kind when I encounter him. This is so radically different than what the people did at Mount Sinai, right? When they said, Moses, you go talk to him. We're going to just hide over here because we don't want to die. But no, that's not our worship. Come, meet God. And finally, in verse 6, we again have a very a common word for, for come in or enter. But it is qualified by the three verbs that follow. Bow down in worship. Bow down and kneel down. When you come into the presence of the Lord, you're going to humble yourself. That's what it's going to be like to meet him. So you bring your, your thanksgiving sacrifice and you bow down humbly. I want to pause and just reflect on this picture of worship, brothers and sisters. The the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, which we read, tells us that this psalm is just as much directed toward us today. The author of Hebrews is talking to the New Testament church, the New Covenant church, and says, Today, if you hear his voice. I remember, like, maybe when I was younger as a child, thinking, like, how amazing it would have been to, to be in Egypt, to see, be at Mount Sinai, or see Jesus, right? Like, all those people, they had that, that privileged blessing of being there, seeing, all experiencing these wondrous works of God. But that's not the view of the New Testament. That's not the view of Hebrews. Today, we hear God's voice. The Holy Spirit is speaking to us today, right now. The creator of the universe is calling you to come and meet with him. To have fellowship with him. Not in fear, but with comfort and peace as a father. And the place he's calling to you is a refuge, a place of refuge. He is a rock of salvation. The world, the flesh, and the devil are all powerless here in God's domain, in his kingdom. What a wonderful, blessed thing it is, brothers and sisters. And and we should pray that the Lord would continue to impress upon us as we grow in our Christian lives that we might love and appreciate this Lord's Day assembly and gathering. And the character of this blessed assembly in our psalm is emphasized by the poetic use of repetition. There are a bunch of words that are repeated in our psalm. 
Let us make a joyful noise. This verb appears in verses 1 and 2. And it tells us that this gathering is not dour or boring or fearful. It is joyous. And this word is is kind of a raucous word. The best thing I could think of to capture the sense of, of this Hebrew word for making a joyful noise is, you know, the home team hitting a home run in the bottom of the ninth, a walk off homer. And you could have your eyes closed and you would hear the roar, right, of joy that just flows uh, out of the assembled crowd. Why? Why should we approach God with such joy? Because he's great. And this is repeated two times in the following verses. He is a great God and a great king above all gods. The psalmist is borrowing the language of Israel's enemies. There are not multiple gods. Psalm 115 is quite clear about this. All those gods are made of wood and bronze and gold. They're not real. They're idols. They're creations of man. And yet, this, we find this expression as well in the Psalter. He is the God over all gods. If you imagine and believe that there are other gods in the world, this God is over them. God's magnitude is boundless, his greatness. The divine attributes which belong to God alone are all statements, really, that God is without limit. Eternal means not limited by time. Omniscience means not limited by knowledge. Omnipotence means not limited in his power. Not limited in space. Omnipresent, immense, incomprehensible. God's greatness is not limited by our puny brains. By what we can understand. He is a great God and a great King. And again, think of all of this this magnitude, this glory, this power. And He wants to meet with you. He wants to talk to you. We know this unknowable truth, this unknowable being, by what we do know and see, by His creation. And so we have another word that is repeated here. His hand. In verses 4 and 5, it's, it's like an envelope around this little mini paragraph to represent that God has, you know, when I was a kid, though, he's got the whole world in his hands. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands form the dry land. The word hand is a word for power or might. It's how God exercises his power. Remember in a preceding psalm, we we saw that he he conquered the seas, the waves crashing on the oceans. Yom, the god of the sea, was defeated. Chaos was defeated and, and hemmed in. And here the psalmist goes further. He says, he didn't just conquer the seas. He didn't just calm the seas. He made the seas. Who is this that even the seas obey his voice? These two verses use a a poetic device called mirism, for those of you that are tracking rhetorical uh, devices, as a statement of extremes to reflect the whole. And it does this twice. The depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains, from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high, God possesses everything in between. And the sea, as well as the dry land, all kinds of surfaces of the earth, from the wet to the dry, it's all in his power. It's all in his hands. As God is the whole creation in his hand, so he has you and I, his people, his new creation. In verse 7, this word is repeated a third time. And this knits the two stanzas together. It knits together God's work of creation of the whole cosmos and his work of new creation. Us, his people. He is our maker. 
Many commentators note that this is sort of an odd expression. We are the sheep of his hand. They think, well, maybe it's supposed to be the sheep of his pasture. Maybe someone copied it down wrong. But the expression uh, nicely puts us in the hands of the good shepherd. It's the hands of the creator of the whole cosmos who comes to us as a good shepherd. And, And in the ancient world, the king was often portrayed as a shepherd who cared for and protected and guided and led his people. Final bit of repetition here is made. The sea is his for he made it and let us kneel before the Lord who is our maker. As the first stanza, uh, verses 1 through 5, calls us to worship focusing on creation. The second stanza, verses 6 and 7, focuses on redemption. And it's not talking about us being made, as in the Genesis account, the creation, the first creation of Adam and Eve. I believe what the psalmist in here is talking about is, is the creation of Israel as God's people. A nation of priests. A kingdom. A royal kingdom. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Yahweh, our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. The psalmist is here drawing attention to our special relationship to God. This isn't just humanity. This is us, his precious church. The ones who have been purchased by his blood. He's talking about the exodus and all the wondrous things they've done. We're the sheep of his hand. God promised a shepherd to lead and to guide his people through the wilderness into the land flowing with milk and honey. The land where he would dwell, where he would build his house and be present, where he would drive out the inhabitants. And what a beautiful, rich and abundant call to worship we find here in these first seven verses. Portraying God in all of his royal glory and us, his people, as recipients of his care and protection. And today, still, that God wants to meet with you and me. Gather you, assemble with you as the members of his body, his bride. So that you and your weakness, you and your sin might be washed and purified, made whole, called forward to take your seat at the wedding feast, at this meal. What a great God and loving God we serve. And then, moving to my second point, there's like the record scratch on the LP and a big shift right in the middle of a verse, verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts. It's a reminder that as we come to worship God, it's not like we're coming to church and by punching a clock. Yeah, I was, I was at church all the time. What else do I have to do? I'm a Christian. God loves me. The world, not so much. Now, this is a reminder that as God calls and gathers his people, that as he leads them as a good shepherd, that our relationship with him is based on trust and faith in his promises. It is as though, thinking back to the exodus, to the new creation at Sinai, the psalmist was reminded that all was not sweetness and light. It isn't as though there's the good old days, right? Though Israel's recent troubles in the exile were unprecedented. You wonder why God drove us off to Babylon. Well, we should know. We should have figured this out by now. God's people can sin against his promises. God's people can reject his offering. Esau can sell his covenant blessing for a mess of pottage. 
And even in that moment where God was at his greatest, where the high king of heaven defeated Pharaoh and all the false gods, the people who witnessed these wonders with their own eyes had yet hardened their hearts. Stubborn, selfish, petty, foolish that they were. This episode here, in case you're not like up to speed on the timeline of, of the Exodus, this happens in Exodus chapter 17, before the people of even reached Sinai. This is three chapters after the Red Sea. Two chapters after Moses' song of rejoicing. The very first psalm in the Bible, I think, is there in, in Exodus 15. Two chapters since Moses had already taken some bitter water and made it sweet by a miracle of God's presence. And one chapter after the hungry people had cried out and had bread rained down from heaven. The sheep of Yahweh's hand have been well watered, well fed. They've been defended from ravenous wolves. And yet, the language here, Meribah and Massah, is the language of a lawsuit. The language of a... I don't know that Moses had like a complaint box. (laughs) But Israel took the trouble to write down all their complaints and file a formal lawsuit. I know a few people here have been involved in lawsuits before. It's not fun. Imagine if you're Yahweh and had given everything to purchase your bride out of slavery, out of bondage. And they turned around and rejected you. We read there, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock. And water shall come out of it. And the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, notice, what's their question? Is the Lord among us or not? Is God really here? Maybe this Moses guy is just a shyster. You know, he murdered someone once. He's on the lamb. I don't trust him. Let's go back to Egypt and get some good food. Yeah, we'll be slaves, but we won't be hungry. The Lord tells Moses to take his staff, with which he struck the Nile just a few days before, as a reminder. I'm here with you. You're thirsty? I took a sea and I parted it. You don't think I can give you some water? He was showing them their unbelief. They're like a a bride engaged the night before the wedding who calls it all off. That's not fair. Grooms call it off all the time too. One of my good buddies in college called off a wedding not once but twice with the same woman. I'm sorry. He shall remain nameless. But that's 
what they're doing. All the gifts had been exchanged. Rings had been given. Pledges had been made. God had done everything for them. And they rejected him. And the Lord said, notice, I will stand there before you on the rock. The power is not in Moses. It's not in some magic stick. The power is the presence of the Lord who is ever present with his people. And the rock was Christ. This is not about a rock. This isn't about Israel. It's not about dirt in Palestine. It's about Jesus. And the Bible is teaching us how stubborn and selfish and sinful we all are. Even today. Notice how they tested the Lord. Is he among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? Is he here? And if so, do you love him? Are you receiving the gifts, the blessings he has for you? Are you trusting in him? Are you trusting in yourself? Do you think you know the way to go? You know it needs to be done. You see, Psalm 95 in book 4 is urging God's people at a time of great trial... And great tribulation to look back and see that all that the Lord had done, creation, redemption, deliverance, provision. But it's not like he's calling them to go back to some golden age. We're always sinners who reject God. Rather, the lesson here is that they must learn. They must heed that the Lord is among them. When they are thirsty and streams run dry, God is here present with us. When Pharaoh's army is bearing down, when there's a cloud of dust drawing near, and the sea blocks the way, God, why did you put me in this situation? He's there with you. When there's no food to eat and you're hungry, and Moses doesn't really seem to know what he's doing, is the Lord among us or not? What terrifying words we read here. When not blessings, but curses come out of our Lord's mouth. For 40 years, I loathed that generation. And said, there are people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It is a matter of the heart. They go astray in their heart. Here's another word of repetition. That our poet uses. Do not harden your hearts. As at Massa and Meribah. They went astray in their heart. And the author of Hebrews concludes at the end of chapter 3. They fell because of their unbelief. It's a hard matter. They didn't trust God. They didn't understand his ways. They thought that they had earned it. They thought that they were special. God chose them. They're in the church. They must be good folks, right? No. No. He's just a good God. They didn't understand that God was going to give them twice as much bread on day six. That rained down from heaven. Why? So they could stop collecting bread and hear him speak to them about how much he loved them. So they could worship him. And this is what Moses, his servant, said. And what did they do on day six? They thought, or rather on day seven, they went out looking for more bread. God didn't give us enough. They didn't understand that God knew the hardness of their hearts. Here we are, Exodus 17. A few chapters later, Moses up on that mountain. Where'd that guy go? They would just as soon worship a calf they made out of gold they stole from the Egyptians. What terrifying words. I loathe that generation. I detested them. 
Who did he detest? Think about it. Who was barred from entering his rest? We see this oath, this divine oath recorded for us, if you want to read it, in Numbers chapter 14. Truly as I live, the Lord said, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. This is after the spies went into the land to spy it out. Remember, they saw that all the Canaanites were really big and scary. God can't defeat them. You know, he's only part of the sea, defeated the Egyptians, superpower. He's fed us with bread and water from a rock. And so they turned tail and they didn't trust God. He said, that's it. I've had enough. And if you come up and ask me what ten times he's referring to, I don't know. I tried to figure out all week. But apparently, our God is a long-suffering God. Ten times. And we read these different accounts, right? They keep putting him to the test. Ten is this number of completion. All they did the whole time we were in this march through the wilderness was complain. They never trusted me. These ten times, God was patient and long-suffering. But they didn't trust him enough to enter into the rest. Psalm 95 is teaching God's people... During trouble days that Yahweh, the great king, is still in their midst. But they just have to trust him and worship him and listen to his voice. It's a warning against a lack of faith. A warning against thinking that everything was better in the good old days. That they've been abandoned by God. That God doesn't love you. As Hebrews tells us in chapter 3. For who were those who heard and rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see, ergo conclusion, we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Hebrews is teaching us about faith. And this brings us to the third point, the new covenant warning of Hebrews chapter 3. The letter to the Hebrews was written to a Jewish Christian congregation, probably in Rome during a time of persecution. And they were drifting away from the gospel because they wanted to go back to the temple, to the good old days, to the old covenant. Chapter 2 of Hebrews says, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Again, today, if you hear his voice, lest we drift away from it. In chapter 10, the author suggests the nature of these difficult circumstances that the church is going through. He writes, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. This might happen to some of us for our faith. Maybe it has happened to you. Sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison. Christians were being locked up. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. They were losing their homes, their possessions. Maybe they lost jobs. Maybe they couldn't get promoted because they insisted on going to worship on the Lord's Day. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You hoped in your heavenly inheritance. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has such a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. We must, we are called to endure. 
And throughout, the author compares this book, the author compares the excellencies of Christ in the New Covenant to what has come before. The law is but a good, a shadow of the good things to come. He's telling us that the whole Old Testament was driving us to Christ. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus, Moses' value was directing the church to Christ. Though Moses was a faithful servant, Jesus is a faithful son. And we are his house. Jesus is building us up. He is our maker in the new creation. And the key thing, one of the key things here is that the rest of the Old Testament was a shadow, a pointer to the true rest, which still remains for us today. And yet the excellencies of the promises we receive in the new covenant, which is founded on better promises than the old, must still be joined with faith. Hebrews exhorts us to take care, lest in any one of us there be an evil, unbelieving heart. Yes, there are people in the church who fall away, brothers and sisters. We are to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Note that the Hebrews claims the today of the psalmist with the today of the new covenant. This is our day, the day of forgiveness. And the question still stands from 3,000 years ago. Is the Lord among us or not? Is he here in bread and wine? Is the great king, the great God, standing in our midst, able to conquer every foe, forgive every sin, to provide you everything you need for body and soul, if you would but listen to him, trust him? The deceitfulness of a sinful heart says, you know what you need. You alone are able to secure it. Michael Horton says, we desire fast food. He wants to spread a feast for us, right? God, just give me what I need. Give me what I want. I must trust not him Or his holy law, but my instruction, the sinner says. Some believe these warnings in the epistles of the Hebrews argue against God's sovereignty, against his electing grace. And they can be hard to understand. Should we be fearful if we've trusted in Jesus? That there's no confidence, no assurance in Christ? If believers can fall away, if we in the new covenant are subject to such warnings, how is it any better than the old? How is this a better covenant? What assurance do we have? But note well what Hebrews teaches and what our faith confesses. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We do not teach in a reformed church, in a Christian church, false assurance, a presumptive view that once you're saved, you're always saved no matter what you do. We confess the perseverance of the saints. When once God begins a good work in you, he gives you the grace to hold that original confidence to the end. It is through the continual use of the means of grace. We talked about this in our catechism sermon this morning. The continual gathering of the saints on the Lord's day. That the Father and the Son keep us firmly in the grasp of our good shepherd. There is no promise That a life of sin, a life of disobedience and unbelief will result in a life of salvation and blessing. The beginning and middle and end of the Christian life is a call to faith. Daily repentance, Luther says. Noah's Ark doesn't save those who jump ship and cast themselves into the sea. The rebels in the wilderness were all delivered from Egypt. They, They experienced God's grace, His provision. They ate the food, drank the water. They tasted salvation. They took part in the Passover lamb. But they didn't continue to trust in God. 
Another way for us to understand this is that the supper that is spread here is a blessing for those who come as repentant sinners. That's who receives forgiveness in the supper. If you're not sorry for your sin, the meal's not for you. That's why we restrict it to members of the church. Those who have confessed that they despise themselves and find their life in Christ alone in their membership vows. We'll see those two weeks from now on display. You cannot eat at the table of our Lord and think it will sustain you through a life of sin and rebellion. And finally, brothers and sisters, it is through the warnings which God's word has for us. Warnings like this today that the Lord works and confirms faith in our hearts. I do believe in Jesus. I do trust that he is here. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus says. And you know that these threats aren't for you. Not because of what you've done or your merit or your worth. But because you're a sinner who's sorry for his sins and received the grace of Christ. And this brings us to our fourth and final point. The promise of rest. Psalm 95 closes with hard words for those hard-hearted individuals who do not trust the Lord. I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. And Hebrews confirms for us they were unable to enter because of their belief. This sounds like a harsh verdict, but it's the same thing that Jesus Christ himself says. You know, the famous passage, John 3.16, it's so... So happy you can hold it up on a sign at a football game. If God so loved the world, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Most of us have that memorized. Verse 17. For God did not send his his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, Jesus said. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The good news is the promise of entering God's rest remains for us today, if we hear his voice. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said. The next chapter in Hebrews explains why Psalm 95 doesn't say, Are you going to enter your rest? Isn't that interesting? Notice the final line. What does it say? They will not enter my rest. It's God's rest because he's the one that gives rest. And he's the one that rested. It is God who rested on the seventh day of creation from all his works. It was secured. The seventh day rest designed for Adam and Eve was secured by the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Who is now resting in heavenly glory from all his works. And the promise of entering that rest remains for us. Neither Moses nor Joshua could give this rest to God's people. So then, chapter 4 says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Hebrews urges us to strive to enter that rest. But how? What kind of striving? We hear the word of God. We hear the word of promise. It's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. We look not to our own merit and strength, but we look to Jesus, the high priest, Hebrews explains he has made a once and for all sacrifice to cleanse us of all our sin and weakness. He is a high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness. Who has been tempted as we are without sin. He went 40 days without food. He was hungry. And Satan appeared and offered him some bread. He said, no, thank you. I'm going to be satisfied with the word of God. And he thirsted. And Satan attacked him. He didn't sin. He didn't doubt that God was with him. And the Lord sent his angels to minister to him. He's passed through the heavens. He's completed his labor. He's entered his rest. And when we look to Jesus, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace in time of need.
Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your incarnation, for your humiliation, for your trials that you have endured, which are our trials. We thank you that you have taken our sin upon yourself and paid its price. And that we can, with confidence, look to you and know that we've been purchased by your precious blood. As you spread this table for believers in Jesus Christ, bread and wine, body and blood, to teach us that our life is not in ourselves, but in you, our Lord, alone. And send your spirit to comfort us as we go from this place, that we might know that you, the Lord, are with us wherever we go to the end of the age, when you'll return in glory. In Jesus' name, amen.